Our uh, sermon text this morning is from Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verses 6 through 14. Ephesians 1, 6 through 14, but starting uh, in verse 5 from last week. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. You start your car and you're excited. It is Friday payday. No ramen noodles tonight. Your friend, uh, your date, or your spouse hops in the passenger seat and you turn to them and ask, all right, what should we eat? You release the parking brake and you put your hand on the gear shift because all you need now is that destination. I could go for anything, they say. And you take your foot off the brake and you take your hand off the shifter because you haven't thought about it either and you can't set out without a plan. Any self-help book will tell you the same thing. You can't accomplish goals without setting goals. And this applies everywhere in life. A debate without a clear topic and an end devolves into a toxic uh, argument with no resolution in sight. Or a trial without clear charges cannot reach a just verdict. A politician without a principled platform will be swayed by money and votes and continually shifting goalposts getting nowhere. No amount of hunger or anger or passion can make up for not having a clear goal or a clear purpose in mind. And yet much of our culture values progress above all else. But progress begs the question, progress toward what? Well, last week, we saw the heart of the Apostle Paul as he was detained by Rome and by Providence, and yet chiefly concerned about the unity of the church in Ephesus. He wanted to know how they were handling his being away for a time, and he wanted to encourage them to recall the unity that they have with one another because of the unity each of them has with Jesus Christ, the mediator of the one new covenant. In love, the Father has predestined us to adoption into the one family with this one mediator, and it's Paul's hope that this church would act unified Because it is unified. And we left off as Paul was saying that our being chosen for adoption to inherit every spiritual blessings in the heavenly place in Christ was not because of our merit or anything that we have done, but rather according to the purpose of his will 
to the praise of his glorious grace. And now, through the rest of this long sentence of sorts, through verse 14, Paul will expound on God's purpose in all of this. God has predestined us to what end? Well, firstly, and chiefly, God's purpose, his objective, his end game, is that we would be blessed in the beloved. That is, the great heavenly inheritance which the beloved son is entitled to for who he is and what he has done would only be blessed or more literally bestowed upon us in the beloved one. And so with this, grace is being emphasized. Indeed, grace from the previous line and bestowed here are very closely related words. Grace by nature is bestowed and not earned. Grace is also emphasized because even though the church is often called the beloved, here the beloved is not us, but Christ. Matthew 12 quotes Isaiah 42 and speaks of the Son in this way, saying, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, or whom I uphold, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to all the nations, that is, to the Gentiles. Paul is linking up here with the idea that the Father chose us in love and expounding upon the nature of that love. It's a love that overflows to us, but it's primarily rooted in the love that the Father has for the Son. Now, in one sense, the Father loves the Son apart from anything that the Son has done. In his triune nature, God is love and doesn't need to do anything to perfect this love. But in another sense, the Father also loves what the incarnate Son does. And in particular, he loves the way that the Son lays down his life. In John 10, Jesus says, I lay down my life for the sheep. There will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. The Father loves this work of the Son because, for one, it expresses the radiance of the glory of God, demonstrating the express image of who God is. And two, the work of the Son has actually accomplished its purpose. And so in verse 7, Paul can speak in the past tense of what it has accomplished for the whole family of God to include saints from the past, present, and future. Paul says, In him we have redemption through his blood. To Paul's Ephesian audience, redemption had to do with the payment of a ransom for either a kidnapped person or a slave. And this redemptive ransom payment would give them the status of a free man. Usually, this ransom was expected to be paid by the person's family from a kinsman redeemer, like in the book of Ruth. The preeminent example of this in Scripture is the Exodus, where we heard God say in our, New, in our Old Testament reading, I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you. So God himself was acting as the great kinsman redeemer there. Colossians 1 summarizes all this whole idea up well. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, 
in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And consistent with Colossians, verse 7 fittingly goes on to explain that his blood was the absolutely necessary ransom price paid for the forgiveness of our trespasses. Ephesians 2.1 also sheds light on the nature of the slavery that our trespasses and sins put us in. There, Paul says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So we were under the tyrannical rule of death, and there was no way for us to initiate freeing ourselves. We needed it to be from the initiative of a kinsman redeemer. The payment had to be initiated by a relative, paid in full, or we would have remained in bondage as Israel was to Pharaoh. And only the blood of the one mediator, man and God, could pay it in full. And so it was initiated by God and not us. The end of verse 7 emphasizes once more that it was according to the riches of his grace. Now, this return to grace in Paul's chain of thought is not just because you can almost never go wrong with responding Jesus or grace if asked in Sunday school and you don't a question that you don't know the answer to. Paul is transitioning here from the motivation behind and the nature of his choosing us, which is love and the beloved through the sacrificial love of, of Christ that poured out his blood as a kinsman redeemer ransom price, and he's transitioning and giving us a feel for why and how we were selected to this redemption to the nature of how he has chosen to unfold this gracious redemption in time, the means by which he brings it to pass in redemptive history, how this unfolding word, one might put it, uh, how this unfolding word has been lavished upon us in verse 8 in all wisdom and insight. Now, lavished is another word synonymous with bestowed and graced. And wisdom and insight conveys to us that grace is not infused to us magically or by osmosis if we sleep with our Bible under our pillows at night. No, the reception of this grace has a wise and insightful nature to it in the way that it's dispensed and the way that it's received. And so, thankfully... Even though we are pausing the Lord's Supper until next week, we are certainly not missing out on the medieval Roman version of the Supper, the Latin Corpus Christus, Hocus Pocus, spectacle on an altar, where virtually no one understood with wisdom or insight what was happening. You just had to trust that the priest was doing something super spiritual up there. Instead, the central aspect of our Lord's Day is not mindless ritual, but learning God's word. Because our minds and our hearts are not disconnected. In fact, the Bible doesn't really even portray the mind and the heart as two separate things. We are a united body and soul, and scripture speaks of our soul as a heart or a mind or a will interchangeably. We'll see that tonight when Paul goes on in the next section to speak about the eyes of our hearts being opened. When verse 9, Paul unpacks more about how grace is given in wisdom and insight, God has been making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. Now, the word mystery might bring several things to a modern mind which Paul may not mean to convey. 
Paul is not talking about secrets or privileged religious knowledge reserved for just the higher-ups. Cultic religions love their hierarchies of status. Scientologists have to have their pay-to-play audits, for example, and Mormons are quite famous for downplaying the importance of theological knowledge and until new converts are locked into their culture and their relationships. I recall speaking with a couple of Mormon missionaries once, and, and upon asking a question about their polytheistic beliefs, they were absolutely stunned that we would want to talk about what they called deep knowledge. Even missionaries spreading this false religion, they still hadn't graduated to thinking much about how their secretly mysterious doctrines of God might have any significant bearing on their day-to-day religious life and good works. Instead of secrecy, though, a biblical mystery is meant to be understood as the unfolding forward progress of God's redemptive plan, where redemptive history hits objective milestones in time. The Noahic Covenant, for example, objectively made time and room for grace to unfold. The Mosaic objectively taught us the depths of our disobedience and our profound need for grace. And Jesus objectively expanded salvation to the Gentiles in the Incarnation, being united not just to Israel uh, in the promises of Abraham and his offspring, but also being united in flesh with all mankind, that he might be the one mediator for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and also objectively redeem them as their ransom. Paul echoes all of this in 1 Timothy 2 when he says, This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So really, a mystery is quite opposite of a secret because God has unfolded history in such a way that concepts have been built upon concepts. And today, entire Israelite histories and periods of redemptive history have been built on to give us deep wisdom and insight into the grace of God in Christ. The New Testament, then, is like the tip of an iceberg where the mountain of the fullness of times past under the surface are under the surface and Christ rises above the waters. And so, at the end of verse 9 and 10, Paul ramps up to the central purpose of this section and a central purpose of the whole epistle. And Paul says that the Father set forth or purposed in Christ as a plan for the fullness of all time to unite all things in heaven and on earth in him. It's God's will and good pleasure to sum up his triune work of redemption in the person and work of the incarnate Son. Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, that in him would be the victorious conquest over all things in heaven and things on earth, past, present, and future. This means that life is not a cycle, 
as the Greeks and the Platonists believed, nor is it an ever-progressing throwing off of traditions towards some amorphous utopia of every individual continually reinventing themselves and their own purposes. Instead, creation and redemption have an ultimate cosmic goal of new creation and the kingdom of God. Christ's coming ushered in that final stage or that final age of this creation and inaugurated the next, which really means that there's no clean break between this age and the next. New creation is already bleeding into ours. We're like the Pevensey children, halfway through the wardrobe in Narnia, still brushing alongside coats in the wardrobe of this world and yet already feeling the crisp air of the next world coming in. And with that, Paul will now focus specifically on one aspect of this forward-moving progress, which, as Saul, he never dreamed he would himself take part in. Paul was appointed by God to be among the first Jewish believers in Christ, another milestone in redemptive history. And so he says in verses 11 and 12, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things into effect according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Here, Paul is speedily ramping up to the crescendo of of praise of God's purposes. He's humbled and he's thankful and he's stacking multiple similar terms on top of each other. The prophet Daniel proclaimed that God does according to all his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And here, Paul proclaims that God is working into effect his plans, his purpose, and his predestined counsels so that all things come to fruition in Christ. In contrast to Zeus or Achilles, the true and living God does not bow to the fate supposedly higher than the gods. Many in Paul's time called them Lady Luck or Lady Fate, and many in Vegas still call on her fortune nightly. But no, there is only the all-powerful God who does all his will according to his design. His purposes have their beginning and end in Christ. They are revealed in redemptive milestones throughout time, and he has or will bring all of his plans to fruition in time. In verse 13, the effectiveness of all God's plans leads into Paul's consideration of the person of the Trinity most associated with being the closer, the finisher, the one who seals the deal, who effectively makes our knowledge of God wise and insightful. This person of the Trinity has been throughout this section from verses 3 to 14, and it actually started with him when Paul spoke of the high heavenly spiritual things, and it ends with him and these last couple of verses. In verse 113, In whom you also as well, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also when you believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Paul now shifts focus from himself to you, from the Israelites like him who were among the first to believe beforehand early on, and you, meaning 
the predominantly Gentile Ephesian church, those who Paul will describe in chapter 2 as Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. And he will exhort them to remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. However, in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place by God, for God by the Spirit. Finally, in verse 14, we read that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. As the guarantee of our inheritance, the Holy Spirit is sent as a down payment of our future inheritance when we will share in the Lord's resurrection and be seated with him in our resurrected bodies and will come into the fullness of our inheritance. It may feel as though that time has been coming forever, but as the closing hymn we'll sing in a few moments puts it, his purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. The time will come when we receive more than a deposit or a guarantee of all that the Father has pointed us to in love and all that the Son has redeemed us to by his blood. The world apart from faith in Christ has nothing to inherit as it sets its sights on ever-shifting goalposts of progressivism to no clear purpose or ends. And yet our God's purposes never fail. In Christ, his promises are all yes and amen, and all to the praise of his glory. Amen. Let's pray.